It would be good to keep your Bible open uh, so that we can journey through this psalm together. But let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you that you speak through your word and even uh, with these words today, which are often so painful, uh, we thank you that they speak to us uh, in our moments of despair and they point us to Christ. And so we pray uh, that you'll be with us today, you'll be with my words, that you'll be with us through your spirit, that you will teach us and convict us uh, and comfort us and lift us up in the things that we need to hear. Amen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, by themselves, uh, they are gut-wrenching words. But then you put them into the context of Jesus on the cross. You know, with the crown of thorns on his head, nails through his hands and feet. You know, lifted up uh, before a mocking self-righteous, gloating crowd, then they really do capture an anguish and despair that is beyond words. To feel completely isolated, not just from people, but from God himself. And so as David writes these words, they really are a journey into darkness. He is forsaken and mocked and surrounded by violence. But in both this psalm and in Jesus' experience on the cross, there is also a recognition that ultimately God is in control. That God doesn't abandon his son. He doesn't abandon his people. He can be trusted and he is worthy of praise. And I think this psalm gives us comfort for at least two reasons. I think firstly because we all have times and experiences of feeling abandoned by everyone. You know, we feel our friends hate us, our family doesn't seem to care, we don't feel respected in our workplace. Uh, We're going through all sorts of personal anguish or anxiety and suffering And yet, no one seems to care. And so, this psalm gives words to those feelings. Uh, And they're honest words, they're open words, they're words of anguish. Um, They're still reverently expressed. David still recognises that he is talking to God. But he talks openly and honestly. And I think the second thing that the psalm does is it points us to the cross. And that's made that much easier as Jesus literally quotes the words of this psalm as he hangs there on the cross. And it points us to what Jesus did for all of humanity and the price he paid for us. So it is a journey into darkness, but it's not a hopeless journey. So let's look at it together. Starting at the start, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. 
You know, I think we can endure all sorts of circumstantial pain around us if we feel that someone's got our back. And perhaps even more if we feel that God has our back. But in this moment, as David writes these words, he doesn't feel any of that. And so you can understand why Jesus would choose to use these words as he hangs there on the cross. I think sometimes we're tempted to feel that, you know, because Jesus knew what was coming, you know, Jesus predicted his own death, he predicted his own suffering. I think we, when we recognise that, we think that somehow makes it easier for him to go through what he went through. Or we focus so much on the physical pain of those events, of the nails in his hands and feet, that we lose that sense of abandonment that he feels between him and his father, where he feels disowned. You know, the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that the father would take this cup from him. But he recognises also that that won't happen and that he chooses to submit to his father's will. And so he bears the full wrath of his father. And there's no sense of God's presence with him on the cross, comforting him as he walks through that. There is just a sense of aloneness and the feeling, the anguish and the pain of God's judgment. And he endured it all because this is the means that God has chosen to show both his justice and his mercy. So the justice of God is that sin must be dealt with. The sin of all of humanity, including our sin. And so God is just. He does not leave that simply unanswered. Our decisions, our evil, our sin have consequences. And God is just. And at the same time, we also see his mercy. That God would choose to allow his son to pay the price for our sin. So in the words of Paul, Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. But in these opening words of this psalm, there is no sense of greater purpose. There's just despair, crying out to God with absolutely no relief. And it's not that God is unable to help. It's even worse than that. He seems unwilling to help. So verse 3 and on, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In your ancestors, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So the psalmist knows the history of Israel. They know that time and time again that God has chosen to show mercy. And let's face it, if you know the history of Israel, they did trust, but it was hardly an impressive trust. You know, there there was sort of moments of trust, uh, which you you could pinpoint, but also incredible moments where they have completely turned their back on God. And yet God still 
chose to rescue them. But that's not the psalmist's experience here. He knows that God is able, but right now he does not feel that God is willing. And so what this is met with, instead of hope, all he experiences is silence. Except from his enemies. And from his enemies, all he hears is contempt. So he, forsake, so he is forsaken by God and mocked by his enemies. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusted in the Lord, they said, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver, deliver him since he delights in him. And of course, these words become prophetic on the cross, don't they? We read that in Matthew this morning. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And those words, let God rescue him now, continue to be thrown at us, don't they? So I think there's some sympathy uh, when bad things happen to Christians which are a result of circumstance. So, for example, if if a gunman goes into a prayer meeting and kills a number of people. But even in, in that moment, it's, you know, pity, but also a sense of ridicule. You know, where is their God now? They put all of this trust in God. They're literally in the room praying to God, and God allows someone to come in and kill them all. What's the point of prayer What's the point of your trust if it's not actually going to protect you or do anything good? Or perhaps we could look at the example of uh, the American missionary, uh, a guy by the name of John Chu, who recently uh, attempted to evangelise and share the gospel of Jesus with the Centralese people who are isolated on an island, if you've you've missed the story. And he he literally uh, lands uh, on, on a boat, Uh, goes on to the island and is killed almost immediately. And as the media reports the story, you know, that there's a sense of both outrage, how dare he attempt to, you know, influence and colonialise, you know, this, this pure, you know, separated culture. And there's ridicule. You know, where's God now? You know, in this, in this moment where someone's trying to do God's work, where is God now? And then for some, that ridicule and that outrage will actually turn to becoming perpetrators of suffering. And we know worldwide that there are Christians who are literally physically suffering and dying for their faith. They are counting the cost. Uh, for us, it's you know, usually less physical. It's more verbal, isn't it? Uh, our experience is the ridicule of our culture. And we feel the cultural oppression when we seek to stand up for Jesus. And there's plenty of people who would love to see us, not so much outlawed, that would make us martyrs, but just pushed into the corner, socially isolated, you know, vilified for our values so that we have no voice in our community. But whether it's physical or verbal, psychological and emotional, we feel the oppression of the culture around us. And so our psalmist is mocked for putting his trust in God. 
But then to twist that knife even further, it's a trust that's been instilled by God. So the very trust that he is ridiculed for, as he feels abandoned by the the God who gave him this trust, he knows that it's from God and yet God is not present. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. They should be words of comfort, but instead they now seem very misguided. You know, it's one thing uh, to be betrayed by someone who you don't trust. There's no real surprise there. Uh, But it's another thing to be betrayed by someone who you trust the most, uh, who has instilled in you a good reason to trust them. They've built up that trust. And then in that critical moment, when it counts the most, they are absent. That's what David feels in this moment. It's a position of complete despair. And so he's forsaken, mocked, and he's surrounded by violence. Verse 12 and 13, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. You know, you can feel this uh, sense of terrifying anticipation. You know, as, as you're about to get crushed by these bulls, but be eaten alive by lions. You know, this is the moment before his imminent death. And you can just feel that moment. Verse 14, my heart has turned to wax. Verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, like a broken piece of pottery, you know, dry as the dust on the ground. And those who hate him take pleasure in his suffering. Verse 17, people stare and gloat over me. 18, they divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garments. So these, this, these words of the psalm, they, they do predict the events of the cross, of what Jesus will experience. But they also give language to that experience, to the emotion of the moment, to the weightiness of what happened on the cross, to that sense of despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you, Lord, do not be far from me. Those feelings of abandonment uh, are real. They are powerful. And they would seem to be supported by all the evidence. But David, in this moment, recognises that they are perception and not reality. And so the Phoenix Rising moment for this psalm as we've just gone into the depths of despair, uh, is verses 19 and on. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Those last two lines uh, get a little lost in translation. So literally it says, Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen, You answered me. So they're not just a crying out to be saved. They're also a declaration of what God has done. Past, 
complete action. So in one line we go from absolute desperation to resolution with no explanation in the middle except simply that God has answered. And I've got to be honest, it would have been really helpful if David had spent just a little bit longer, a few more poetic words, uh, explaining how God answered, how his circumstances changed, because that would give us some direction, wouldn't it, in terms of our expectations. How should we understand our suffering and how it's going to be resolved? Because I think we often feel that suffering is a bit like one of those detox diets. You know, it's a relatively brief disruption uh, to my otherwise happy and prosperous life. And so it's a good learning opportunity. Uh, It's a good opportunity to uh, trust in the Lord. But we expect it to be brief. And we expect to be able to see at the end that God had a clear purpose for it. You know, we'll look back six months later and go, ah, oh, I can see all the good things that God had planned for my moment of discomfort. I think sometimes we even hope, you know, perhaps we could see at least, uh, you know, a brief smiting of one of our enemies. But so often that's not our experience, is it? We don't often see with any clarity what God's good purpose was in this moment. And if that is our expectation, then we will be disappointed. But I also challenge us, if that is our expectation, then perhaps we haven't read the whole picture of Scripture. Because so often we see in Scripture that God's faithful people will suffer for their godliness. And so often... There is not a happy ending, at least not in this present age. So Jesus once said to his disciples in Luke 9, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And we saw that anguish on the cross, didn't we? That God the Father did not relieve the Son of his suffering. He did not take the cup from him. He endured it, and he endured it for our sake. But then, of course, we go a little bit further ahead, and we do see the end of the story. It's not a story in this life. Events didn't pan out in this life. Where we have to look is to what happened next. Yes, he rose again, but then he is exalted in heaven. God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And we see that same theme of suffering and hope in the words of Paul. I think this would have to be one of my favourite verses, but I do say that about quite a few verses. (laughs) For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, sometimes God will relieve us from our imminent circumstances and suffering. And when he does, absolutely praise God for that. That's wonderful. But more often than not, when Jesus is talking about suffering, when the scriptures talk about salvation... 
They are talking about salvation from sin. And our hope is not in the present. Our hope is in the future. And so no matter how bad things become, no matter how abandoned we feel in the moment, we know that we are confident of our certain future hope. That God will not let us go. He will not let us slip through his fingers. And so despite all of the hardship and the suffering, the right response is praise. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Yeah, it's a fantastic picture, isn't it? God's people gathering together, rejoicing together, and David in the middle of it all, singing God's praises. I think we do a lot of things when we come together. You know, we think about our time, but I hope it is characterized by praise. Even in our most solemn moments, you know, when we confess our sins together, we move from that moment to a moment of also recognizing God's grace and mercy. And so it's not really a cheering moment, but it's a quiet reflection moment of praise. That even in our weakness, God loves us, God is merciful to us. I think a lot of people uh, feel that we, uh, as Anglicans collectively, uh, don't do a very good job of praise. Uh, We're not always the most exuberant lot. Uh, I think that's probably true. Uh, We all express ourselves differently, don't don't we? You know, I am not a hand-raising, dancing kind of guy. Uh, On the dancing front, that's a mercy. Uh, uh, It doesn't, you know, we express ourselves differently. But can I say, if you're an exuberant personality, then express your exuberance in a way that you are comfortable with. Uh, My only caveat to that is... Uh, to recognise that that we're we're a gathering together, that we're a community of people, and therefore think about how your exuberance impacts other people. And at the same time, if you're not the most exuberant person and you don't really like exuberance around you, uh, then be gracious and, and allow people to express themselves in how they praise God together. And certainly as we sing together, as we pray, as we open up God's word, it's all an expression of our praise. We open up the Bible because we know God speaks. And so we savour those words and we praise him as we listen. This psalm looks beyond our present gatherings, doesn't it? To something even better still. Because God has dominion not just over us now, but over all of creation. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. It's an all-encompassing picture, isn't it? That God will gather people from every nation, from amongst the wealthy and from amongst those who cannot keep themselves alive. It's a lovely way of saying for those who are on the brink of death, God is there with them. He is not saying, and we know this from uh, what David says in other Psalms, and we know from the bigger picture of Scripture, he's not saying that God will simply save all of humanity no matter what our response to God is. Sometimes people use the language to say that's universalism, 
in the end, God saves everyone. The scriptures don't teach us that. But what they do teach us is that God will gather together his people from every nation, from every circumstance. And God's righteousness will be proclaimed. It'll be proclaimed amongst his people and it will be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They'll proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. You know, David never could have imagined our world today. Imagine he went from his palace, you know, three and a half thousand years ago to standing outside today. You know, just the TV would blow his mind. Uh, But uh, his words are being fulfilled today. That his word has been proclaimed from generation to future generation to those who were yet unborn. That's us. Halfway around the planet in this weird place called Australia, we gather together to listen to God's word. And that word that was proclaimed to us is the word that we proclaim to those around us. So we have both benefited from it and we have a responsibility to it. And it's not just about, you know, hear about Jesus because we want you to improve your life. It's hear about Jesus because you need to be saved. You need a relationship with our God and our Creator. That's the message that we have to proclaim. That's the message that we want everyone to hear. But we also know that's a message that will come with suffering. That's a message that our world doesn't want to hear. That's a message that people feel confronted by. But as we proclaim God's word, we also know that God is more powerful than our culture. That God can overcome the messages of our world and that God will gather together his people. And so the final words of this psalm are definitive. They're great words. He has done it. God is the one who made David trust him. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who has dominion over all the earth across all the generations. And God is the one who allowed his son to die on the cross to pay the price for our sin. For our sin and for the sin of humanity. So I think the big challenge of this psalm is how do we respond to feeling forsaken and mocked by the world around us? You know, is the, temp- the temptation is to hide, you know, to make ourselves a small target in the world. But if we trust that really God really is sovereign, that he is in control, and if we trust that our world really needs to hear that, then we also need to pray for courage, don't we? The courage to stand up and to speak the good news and to praise God, to praise God in times of peace and prosperity and to praise God in times of overwhelming hardship because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, sorry, from the love of God that we have in Christ. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for this psalm, that it does uh, give us words in times where we feel uh, the weight of loneliness, uh, of suffering, 
uh, of being abandoned in a world that is often hostile to you. Uh, But Lord, it also gives us words of praise and courage. Uh, Help us to stand up in the world, to be confident of your goodness, to be confident of your sovereignty, and to stand up and to praise you and to proclaim your word uh, to our community, to those people we love, to our family, uh, that they might know you and be saved. Amen.